Hello everyone and welcome to issue 263 of the Cane and Rinse podcast. Before we launch into Gone Home, uh, play along with volume 6 of Cane and Rinse. Upcoming shows include Uncharted 4, A Thief's End, Diablo 3 and its DLC Reaper of Souls, Ninja Gaiden and every variant of that game, Black, Sigma and Plus, um, Mad Max and Flashback. Please head over to canyonrinse.com for articles, features and reviews and links to our forum, Facebook and YouTube channel. And also we have another podcast called Sound of Play um, where we celebrate music and we highly encourage all of our listeners to go listen to that show also. And if you want to give something back, we have a Patreon. Um, There's no hidden content. Nothing is behind paywalls. It's simply there if you feel like contributing to uh, Canaan Rinse and Sound of Play. Uh, you can find that at patreon.com slash Rinse. So, joining me, Joshua Garrity, in issue 263 are John Salmon. Hello. And Sean Bell. You're right. Hello. Uh, unfortunately, James uh, was unable to join us uh, for today's recording because, and I'm not joking, he's on an island with no internet, so... <laughs> Um, you could have just said you didn't want to be on the podcast, James, but oh well. So, Gone Home, um, a game developed by the Fulbright Company, uh, released uh, in August 2013 and more recently on uh, PS4 and Xbox One uh, in January, February, uh, depending on where you are in the world, in 2016. So Fulbright is made up of a team that previously worked on Bioshock 2 uh, Minerva's Den. So the key members of that staff are Steve Gaynor, uh, Carla Z- uh, Zimania, and Jonaman Nordhagen. Um, uh, those three individuals worked on Bioshock 2 Minerva's Den and if you want to hear more of our opinions on that particular DLC entry please go over to issue 73 of the Cane Rinse podcast where we cover Bioshock 2 and now for our histories uh, John why don't you start us off uh, okay well I remember Gone Home from uh, 2013 when a huge number of podcasts that I was listening to at the time, sort of gaming podcasts, what have you been playing style podcasts, uh, people were talking a lot about it and it sounded very interesting to me. I had played Bioshock 2. I'm pretty sure at that point I played Minerva's Den and as I'm probably not going to get any arguments from either of you, Minerva's Den might be the best piece of Bioshock content that exists. I've never played it, but I, that is what I keep hearing. Yeah, I, I really should play it at some point. It's... I would agree it's stronger than uh, Bioshock 2, I think, by quite a margin. But I, I still prefer Bioshock 1. But yeah, anyway, our opinions are on other podcasts. Uh, yeah. yeah, the number of people talking about this new, slightly unusual style of game, which I think at the time, uh, this interactive narrative experience had only been explored in a couple of of other sort of prominent titles uh let's say it sounded sounded very cool to me um i went out and bought it on steam tried to load it up and was told that my laptop even though it was only about 18 months old at the time was too rubbish to run it 
um, and still is probably even worse. So I, I sat on it for two and a half years until it popped up on the consoles and I bought it immediately on the Xbox One and played it pretty much straight away after you know having wanted to for best part of three years at that point. Sean? Because um, I know Steve Gainer was on uh, Idle Thumbs quite a lot, right? And I... I think I have like a weird uh, inferiority complex when it comes to Idle Thumbs, and that loads of people I know listen to it. But because <laughs> when you when you do like quite you know relatively small podcasts and everyone's you know you mention to people you do a podcast, oh yeah, do you listen to Idle Thumbs? No, no, I don't. Stop mentioning Idle Thumbs. <laughs> um, but I, I used to follow him on Twitter um, just because he um, just was an interesting and smart guy who had interesting things to say about game development. And then obviously he was tweeting a lot about Gone Home because he was busy making it for quite some time. And similar to John, I sort of I'd, I'd played sort of Dear Esther um, and enjoyed it. And then, you know, and it was, like I say, it was this time when it was like, you know, the dreadful term, the walking simulator was, was sort of coming into its own. Um, so, yeah, so I was really intrigued and, you know, because I'd heard that Emily Carroll's doing some of the art and I'm a fan of hers as well. Um, so, yeah, picked it up on the PC immediately when it came out and um, like finished it in one evening and was well impressed. <laughs> when they announced they were doing the console edition, I was like, well, there's not really any reason for me to pick it up. But then they mentioned that it was going to have this director's commentary. And then, of course, it ended up on PlayStation Plus, which is perfect because then I didn't have to pay any money for it. <laughs> so I've, I've recently... Um, I haven't played through the entire game again, but I've sort of done some of the initial bits with the commentary on, um, which is really fascinating and, and sort of really nicely... Um, you know, a game like this sort of really suits, you know, that, that thing of just there just being little markers dotted around that you can just tap on and listen to the, the devs talk about things because, of course, the game is... Because there's no action component, you know, you're not breaking things up uh, to sort of stop and listen to, you know, things about how the game is made. So it's a really nice experience doing that. Yeah, um, for me, um, I knew absolutely nothing about this game until it was very close to launch again it was a case of um hearing people kind of discuss it on podcasts and and uh seeing kind of the word of mouth online um that got me into it but i went into it kind of absolutely knowing nothing and mm. i think that is the recommended way of experiencing this game just mm, definitely if you if you haven't played gone home and you're listening to this i would really advise just playing it all the way through because mm. honestly there there's some red herrings in there and there's some twists and turns and it's worth experiencing before listening to this so it's only two hours it's an evening's worth of entertainment so go do that so i had i had played stuff like dear esther and honestly like i don't i don't dislike dear esther but it kind of left me cold um mm. Just, it lacked, um, even though I loved what it was doing, um, uh, that kind of combination of poetry and artistry is is something that should uh, appeal to me, but um, it lacked an emotional potency that just kind of really drew, drew me in. Mm. And so I went into Gone Home feeling like, right, okay, um, this is a style of game that I've had one experience with that wasn't entirely successful, but I'm willing, I'm hoping um, this time will be the ticket, as it were. And it was, um, just to spoil my uh, summary thoughts. Like, this 
and ended up being kind of like the the, the gold standard by which I measure a lot of these um, th- these games in the walking simulator genre. I hate that. <laughs> I hate that term. I I really like. I mean, for me, this is more like a first person adventure game because there is. Yeah. Um. Go- Gone Home gets compared to stuff like um, Dear Esther and stuff like that, but really, there's a lot more interactivity and player driven. Um, interaction with the world and 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 the storytelling than most of the games that would would be directly compared to this. So I don't think it's really fair to call this a walking simulator. But um, yeah, since then, um, so I played it when it originally came out, and then for this podcast, I dove back in, uh, went through the modifiers. Uh, turned off locked doors and then turned on mm. the comment- commentary and then just strolled from room to room listening to all the commentary t- uh, tracks and uh, soaking in um, all of the stories that Steve Gaynor, um, Carla and Yonaman and um, and Chris Remo, who's the composer on this game, um, had to say about the game's development. Um, there's also some uh, really powerful stuff from Sarah Grayson, the uh, voice uh, voice actress mm. who plays Sam um, in some of the commentary as well. I, I really recommend if you've played Gone Home, uh, going and uh, going in again and listening to that commentary stuff because it's really insightful. And plus, I think you know we should support developers doing that because. We get so little um, behind the scenes with video games as is that when they do do stuff like that, come on, guys, let's mm. uh, <laughs> let's encourage it. And um, yeah, I was, it's a really great addition to that game, that commentary, and really useful for somebody who's about to host a podcast on it. <laughs> um, so yeah, um, that's our... Yeah. Considering that the game is, you can play through it and explore basically everything in about two hours... You add in another hour to go through hour hour and a half, listen to all the commentaries. It really fleshes it out into a you know into yeah. an evening, as it were, rather than just a quick two hour flash in the pan. Absolutely, gone home. Here's the setup: you play as a character called Katie, who has been abroad, uh, touring the world, going on an adventure, and she comes back to her family home to find a note on a door, uh, note on the door from her sister Sam that says she's not there, she's left for mysterious reasons, and also the parents aren't there. Uh, they're apparently on a romantic getaway. Um, we find out later on um, that that's probably not what it sounds like at all. Um, and now I'm going to issue the uh, spoiler warning for this podcast you know, the majority of this conversation that we're about to have is going to be about narrative. We're going to, you know, touch on the way interactivity influences the storytelling and all of that. But really, the meat of this conversation is going to be about the narrative. So if you don't want it to have, you don't want it to be spoiled for you, please stop listening and play Gone Home. In addition to that, even if you're one of these people like me who's not normally fussed about uh, spoilers and narratives, and I'm I'm quite heavily of the opinion that even if you know how a story plays out, there's still a lot to be gained from it. Um, there's a, a mechanical aspect of Gone Home, which is also very spoilerable. And yeah. through having listened to lots of people talking about the game beforehand, I had this mechanical side of it spoiled completely for me. And even though, like I say, I don't normally worry about spoilers, 
it completely changes the whole aspect of the game. And I definitely mm. felt like I wasn't getting anywhere near the experience that I could have been if I'd been absolutely yeah. blank about it. So like I say, even if you don't care about narrative spoilers, if you want to play this game, seriously, seriously consider playing it before you listen to this because we will ruin what is quite an integral part of it and it's worth saying as well like it's not a huge commitment it's it's a it's a fairly short yeah. game uh, for what it is but it, yeah it yeah it gives a lot more than it, it takes away from the player yeah, i think definitely. despite its its brevity it's um it, yeah it's well worth playing so i'm gonna ask both of you uh for your first impressions um when you entered the house and and what you felt about the tone and kind of the uh, atmosphere. But before um, I turn it over to you, I just want to read this forum post from Telpri um, just to kind of give us a a point to launch off of. Mm. Um, So Telpri says, as much as I love other walking simulator games and even prefer them overall to Gone Home, I think Fulbright nailed the setting as it relates to telling a story. Dear Esther felt more like a poem that was written by one person and a painting done by another in response to that poem. Everybody's gone to the raptures. Setting directly relates to the story being told, but it still feels vast and overwhelming, especially on subsequent visits. Similarly, the Stanley parable can feel overwhelming in its own way. The house in Gone Home feels cosy and small enough to not get lost in but still has enough variety and personality in its rooms to make me want to explore. So, John, you, you enter the house. What, what, are, what are your first feelings when you, when you enter this home? I feel in a lot of ways it's something that I can relate to quite strongly because you've got a character who's been away for quite a long time. Uh, she's never been to this property before. She turns up in the middle of the night nobody's around it's dark and stormy you've got you come into the house and you've got a tv that's obviously like automatically on playing some sort of weird storm warning in the area everything's dark like say you've never been here it seems like the family have recently moved in and there's sort of boxes and crap that's still not been sorted out yet so it's it's a real ominous feeling walking into something that the character is in exactly the same position that you would be in. And I think that, you know, you can probably probably relate to the feeling of going somewhere new that you've never been, even with some slightly familiar things like the family portraits on the wall in the in the entry entryway, I think. But it's yeah, it's got a weird sort of ominous creepiness behind the whole thing. Sean. Uh, yeah, same in in the sense that it, it's really interesting because, you know, as you say, there's this it's this space that you have never been to before. But like, you know, you kind of Katie's obviously having to sort of accept that this is now her family home. And it's like, yeah, so it's a place she's never been to, but has been inhabited by her family. So you say, so, you know, there's these hallmarks dotted around that obviously her family have lived there. And there's a there's that sort of sprinkling of familiarity, but yeah, in a building that is is alien to her, and yeah, there's that creepy element. Like the obviously there's the you know the the rainstorm um, going on outside. There's most of the lights being off, um, which actually I mean, and that's that's interesting because the thing with the lights is it's kind of creepy, but it's also just like a really useful way of keeping track of where you've been. Mm. Um, so it sort of makes sense on a mechanical level <laughs> as well. Um, 
but yeah, like you, you know, like I say, the you know thunderstorm going on, the the message. Uh, so there's the the note on the door from Sam, which is quite ominous, and then the you know the the mm. voicemail message that you can find on the answering machine. Was it called voicemail then? Probably not. Mid nineties, I think it was just answering machine messages. Yeah. Um, and yeah, the, you know the one of it's Lonnie, right? He's really upset. Yeah. Um, but obviously, it's yeah, totally. Yeah. Uh, totally devoid of context yeah. at that point so it's just like oh it's like something really bad has happened um <laughs> and especially you know once you you go upstairs and you see um you know sort of the, there are there are a number of things that are there to sort of creep you out like when you first go into you know one of the bathrooms where sam has dyed lonnie's hair mm. yeah. and all the yeah. red dyes splattered everywhere and you're yeah, like oh, stains oh my god like, it's, it. yeah <laughs> like it's yeah. blood um and then you know the entrance mm. to sam's uh you know the attic space and there's all these things that sort of give it almost like a survival horror vibe and obviously with it being like a massive mm. house there's resident evil comparisons i suppose uh, <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah i mean yeah. this this is worth going into now but um you know my initial impressions of Gone Home were that, like, I I knew nothing about this game, and everything about the start of this game is leading you to believe that you are entering a horror story, mm. and that you know the lightning, the rain, mm. um, the sound design, just the moodiness of the house and how imposing it feels, mm. and the. Uh, the splatterings of f- familiarity almost amplify how alien the invite because obviously it's just a house and when you play for it a second time and you know what the narrative is going to be there's much more of a comforting feel um, and, and I found it interesting that like Telpri said like gone home feels cozy and small because that that feeling only came to me on you know subsequent playthroughs um, on my first playthrough the house felt huge and mm. imposing and I think the the Resident Evil comparison is really apt because mm. it has that kind of peeling back of the layers that that Resident Evil has, where you're just you know piece by piece unlocking every door yeah. and, and getting a sense of the space. And that that red dye is the big one. That's the mm. big big moment where everyone's like, "Oh God, has so has someone actually been murdered in this house?" <laughs> this- Until you pick up the, I think there's like a dye bottle or something yeah, yeah. on the floor and you're like, oh okay and then and you it's, get and it's so perfectly yeah diary. it's so perfectly played because yeah then you get that flashback when it's actually like mm. a really nice moment between sam and lonnie and it's like yeah and that's the you know the first suggestion that you know like look it's not a horror game there's just a couple of red herrings dotted around yeah there's there's a lot of little things like that like the first couple of audio diaries and um i think do the audio diaries all pop up when you pick up an item that's pertinent to them, like you'll pick yeah. up the note from Sam yeah. at school and it will start playing the audio diary about her first day at school. And then yeah. there's a lot of talk about, they call it the psycho house. Um, yeah. Something, something yeah. terrible happened in this house. And then as you're wandering around, you find lots of books about sort of the occult and summoning ghosts. And <laughs> there's all yeah. this weird conspiracy stuff through with the dad's writing and yeah, everything yeah. you see like that is creepy and suggests that this is a weird old house on a hill that everybody in the local community thinks is some sort of weird psycho house. And you never really find out why they think of it as the psycho house. I guess just because the owner of it was a weird recluse 
who yeah. had some sort I mean he's obviously there's obviously weird stuff there that's never a hundred percent explained, but it's very heavily hinted at him being this weird predator. But I don't know if mm. there's you know, it was something that came out and then he was like, Oh, this is the town's sort of creepy pedo who lives on the hill in the massive house. <laughs> Because yeah. it's never, I mean, I know we're probably jumping massively yeah. ahead now. It's, ne- it's never no, made it's clear, like, what the public knows about Oscar, right? Because, yeah. obviously, we, you know, as the players, we, you know, clues are left and, and we can sort of figure out what, what happened and we'll, we'll get onto mm. that. But then you can find his obituary and it's like, oh, yeah, he died and he was, he was you know, well-loved and, and um, you know, his funeral was well-attended and um, and yet people know it as the psycho house. So there's a there's a sort of a weird mismatch. I guess it's just a situation where, you know, there, there were rumours but nothing ever proven. But... Yeah. I, I think it's to the game's benefit that it doesn't kind of elaborate on that. I, yeah, I, I think sure. personally, because for so long I was convinced that the opening was telling me that this was a horror movie, if it had mm. gone into that kind of detail, mm. I, I would have just kind of been annoyed because it's like you've really led me down the path here for no real reason. Mm. Whereas um, the way they had it set up was more that they hinted at that stuff while also building up all the other character relationships. Mm. So it felt less like I was tricked and more that I was putting the wrong puzzle pieces together, Mm. which uh, is a bit more elegant. Um, Mm. And and talking a bit more generally about about the house, um, one of the things that... um, I think is uh, you know a common kind of um, celebration of this game is how every section of the house, if you know, you really feel um, the characters who inhabited that space, um, mm. depending on what part of the house you are. Now, I, I found because I I came from quite a closely knit um, family unit, um, which. Uh, Recently, my parents split up. I'm fine, guys. Don't worry. Um, but that experience kind of um, showed me how spaces can change when a relationship like that fractures. Mm-hmm. So when I was in a family home and everyone was closely knit, the, the kind of the spaces and who belonged where kind of melded together like the living room was nobody's space it was everyone's because everyone's kind of items and bits of their personality were spilt all over the place same with the kitchen same with most rooms the Mm. only rooms that really kind of you identify with a single person is those people's bedrooms and with parents that that you know they share a bedroom so it's their unified space I only got a sense of kind of how uh, my parents would have filled that space if they were on their own when they Mm. split up and I got to see, um, you know, the places they moved to and how they've kind of formed those spaces. And what I think Gone Home does a really good job of is with the, the father and mother of depicting that kind of same process within the same building. Mm. So I playing it a second time, I really recognized that kind of starting to, you know, put a line down and right, this is the dad's space and this is the mother's space and um and that kind of <laughs> fracture. Um and it and it felt really real in a way that um uh, it di- I didn't get the first time I played it because before then my parents were together. So uh, the, 
I think it's really well observed in its kind of depiction of a family kind of being torn in half um, and the way the house kind of um, depicts that. I think like a lot of people might see it and, you know, as you say, you sort of, you begin by going through uh, Terry, the dad's sort of wing of the house. Yeah. And, you know, I guess for a lot of people, there would be this sort of temptation to sort of be like, oh yeah, is his man cave or, or whatever. Yeah. But actually, yeah, the implication is that, like obviously in Sam's case, it's different because she's a teenager and teenagers yeah. do sort of need their own little annex. But but in the case of the two parents, it's like it is kind of unhealthy that they've sort of given each other so much space. Like, you know, and obviously that's sort of implied through mm. the fact that, you know, they, they've had, you know, marital troubles. And, and um yeah, and it's like it's interesting, like from a storytelling perspective, it really works that, as you say, each sort of area of the house is really sort of owned by a member of the family. And it's like you find out sort of about each one in, in a sort of sort of a loose sequence. Mm. But um but yeah but it but it's then that implication that actually maybe they shouldn't be this divided like there's no real communal space for everyone where they all hang out you know <laughs> well, it it'd be interesting to see what the the previous house was like before they moved yeah. into this massive great big mansion which they've literally got a separate wing each which the dad has claimed one side of it and has his office with its own personal library on you know on the the west build, west side of the building and the mother's got her own all the way over about as far away as you could possibly get from each other in this massive great big mansion so they mm. could they could spend the entire sort of working time not not coming across each other there are yeah. separate almost separate living rooms that and communal spaces that you could use it's just this this unnecessarily large building for a three person family yeah because um, it's like obviously you know, most people probably feel like they could always use more space, but then it's yeah, this sort of shows a situation where that's been to their detriment because they're they're yeah. they're able to sort of completely avoid each other, basically. Yeah. And it's yeah. it's weird as well because in the narrative of the game, if you look at the um, the diaries and things from uh, Sam, it's obvious that the the story that's being told from them moving into this house to the day that you turn up has been over quite a long period of time. But yeah. there are still boxes of stuff like unpacked that yeah. you know I've I've moved into a flat and it's like oh first thing I need to do is get everything out of its box because otherwise I look like you know I've got these boxes all piled up in the corners. These people can afford to not bother unpacking stuff and just <laughs> dump it <laughs> yeah. and not be yeah, tripping over everything entire... all the time. There's one um, great um, commentary track where. Uh, Stephen and Carla kind of discuss this jazz cup and how terrible it is, <laughs> the design <laughs> of the jazz cup. And then they kind of go on to kind of discuss their approach to the 90s nostalgia of the game, mm. where they would look at an item they've created, go, that looks terrible. And then they would put it in the game. <laughs> and yep. that would be their approach to recapturing the 90s. Um, I think the kind of 90s nostalgia, I mean, I don't know how um, generally this was received, to be honest. Um, I'm I'm a child of the 90s, so I, I have an affection for that time period that mm. it seems like most of the internet does not have. Um, mm. But I, I really appreciated kind of like, you know, the SNES cartridges, the, um, mm. the cassette tapes oh, and, and, the, and all of that stuff. And Wait, Let me tell you about the... Um 
the TV room with all the videos uh, that have been set to long play and have had two movies recorded on them or two episodes of The X-Files. I have got a crate of VHS tapes in my parents' garage that are exactly like that. Yeah. It, um, was, the, we, uh, it was the magic eye pictures that did it for me. Oh, that, was, that too. That, that really hit home. <laughs> yeah. But just um, the kind of general aesthetic of everything being kind of really over the top and gaudy um mm. like the, the thing um when i think of the 90s i really think about uh 90s comic books and the kind of the complete disaster that was um characters like spawn who are absolutely <laughs> terrible but he he's a great kind of symbol for the gaudiness of the design aesthetic of that period where everything mm. is to the extreme and it's kind of like the 80s happened, and that was kind of over the top to a reasonable degree that everyone was happy with. And then the 90s were like, well, we've got to go even further. And then the early <laughs> 2000s, it's like, mm. got to calm the hell down. <laughs> um, it's interesting. Yeah. Like, I, I, I don't know. Like, I don't feel much nostalgia for the 90s. I mean, I, I think we're about the same age. I was, I was born in 85. So yeah, I was, same. Uh, yeah, so I was 10 when this, you know, when this game is set. Um, mm. And I, I don't know what it is about the '90s. I don't know if it's just maybe it's just not been long enough for people to get nostalgic about it, or maybe they just were, you know, maybe the '90s were just worse than you know the '80s or the '70s or whatever. <laughs> like it, it's difficult to imagine what a '90s revival might look like um, for me. Yeah. But I don't know if maybe that's because I'm too close to it. I mean, you know, there, and there's a nod to um, laser discs in this, but then you know, to actually have a laser disc player in the '90s, you had to be rich anyway so <laughs> like, yeah. that's not a sort of a relatable like oh yeah do you remember how cool they were like they're sort of cool objects now but at the time they were sort of pretty inaccessible and sort of mostly unheard of for most normal people i think i think that yeah. um video games do 90s nostalgia quite well because everybody looks yeah. back fondly at um you know the the nez was back end of the 80s more than the 90s mm. but was still very popular during that period and the snes was massive and the mega drive was massive and the playstation was massive but that's an industry that was coming into into its own during mm. the early to mid nineties so much. But then, I mean, you say that, but then like loads of games have you know like pixel art is a is a popular thing to do, but no one sort of intentionally makes their game look like a PlayStation One game. <laughs> or if you look at something <laughs> like uh, you know look at like uh, Nidog for example. Um, first Nidog had sort of really you know minimalist pixel art. The second one they've made it look like an Amiga game, and everyone hates it. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It just feel like the nineties. I mean, yeah, like obviously those, you know, visually there's some incredible stuff um that that came out. But yeah, a lot of it feels like sort of neither fish nor fowl. Like it's it was the, the I, birth I, of three D, but not in a way that anyone remembers too fondly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know, it's, the, it's a strange time. I think that the nineties was kind of like a period of a lot of um technical innovation, but people don't remem remember it fondly as kind of um, kind of the de defining definitive art. I know uh, mm -hmm. there will be grunge fans who are, you know, shouting at me right now, but honestly, <laughs> that music never spoke to me. And I think yeah. the music that evolved from that genre was much more appealing. Um, but like the PlayStation 1 era is kind of like indicative of that as well. Like a lot of things that I love about video games started with the PlayStation 1 era. Like mm. Resident Evil, you know, the first version of that game is really difficult to go back to. But then you think about like every game that that ended up influencing and mm. 
Yeah, mm. and I feel, yeah. and I feel that way about the night, like mm. Jurassic Park. Like, yeah. I mean, to be fair, like that, I, I do think that's a classic. But yeah. like the technical innovation that was going on in that film mm. is amazing. Um, uh, I'm going to read a post from Hunter mm-hmm. Thirty, kind of just to bring a full stop to our discussion about the uh, setting and and kind of the horror uh, red herring that was. Uh, that uh, features in the early half of the game. So Mm. Hunter 30 says, one of the strongest impressions that Gone Home left on me relates to what it isn't rather than what it is. Emerging from the dark, stormy night into a house laden with an atmosphere of disquiet, I was filled with a familiar sense of creeping dread and unease, despite the fact that I'd read reviews which clearly stated that this was not a horror game. I had to check several different forums to reassure myself that I wasn't about to be reduced to a shrieking idiot by some horrific ghoulie lurking around the next corner. Even then, with the game seeming to share so much of the genetic makeup of its distant horror genre cousins, I found myself occasionally wondering whether I was the victim of an internet-wide conspiracy designed to make me lower my guard. While I maintain that if my family were going to move into a house like that, I too would leave the country and go travelling, eventually I was able to settle down and properly enjoy the game's nostalgic beats and unfolding story. I don't deny that the manner in which the developers deliberately sought to subvert genre expectations, assuming that this was their deliberate intention, was cleverly done, but I also felt that in some ways... This was a distraction from these other aspects of the game. Yeah, mm-hmm. so um, I, I've kind of expressed some positivity towards the uh, the horror red herring, but um, there, there are uh, you know the critics online who say it kind of distracts from the point that we're going to get onto now um, mm-hmm. that the game is really focused on. But um, oh, no, this is this is the mechanical spoiler that I was talking about before, and because I yeah. had heard a lot of people talking about the game i had heard the same thing over and over and over of this was really creepy i was really expecting something and the entire game had my hackles up and Mm. then it never happened and it just turned out to be a complete misdirection this was i heard that so many times when i actually went to play it i was well aware that all this horror stuff is just for show and Mm. i didn't buy into it at all i was just you know i knew just play the game enjoy what's there don't get freaked out by this horror thing and i really felt that if i'd not been aware of the fact that it was all a red herring i would have had a very different experience and arguably something that would have added an extra layer that i unfortunately got robbed of and Mm. i kind of i kind of wish that i hadn't known that it would have been potentially i mean you still get everything that's there the story is still there you lose the extra moments of tension and yeah knowing knowing beforehand that that wasn't the case i was much more sort of laser focused on well the story's going to be something different so i wasn't sitting there making up all these weird creepy stories in my head and i do wish that i had had that experience let's move on to what i feel is the focus of the experience which is the kind of individual and interlocking stories of the characters that we learn mm. about um, in this in this house. So the the main story is for me the the love story between Sam and Lonnie, um, and through that that you know the st- the story explores kind of Sam's sexual awakening and um, dealing with being gay and 
having to deal with um, parents who are not accepting of her homosexuality. Mm. But also um, we get insight into Terry, the father who um, has a failed writing career um, that we learn about and possibly uh, a troubling past with his uncle and um, the wife, Janice, as well. Uh, We learn about her wildlife conservation uh, work and uh, a possible affair that she might be considering but um, we we have to start with Katie the player character who could have so easily been just an empty vessel and for the majority of the experience I think it's fair to say she kind of is Mm. but throughout the experience they pepper the world with these little postcards and Mm. uh, little um, examples of her personality that really kind of give you insight into the kind of person she is so I mean let's start with Katie and and how we felt about um, the way the game kind of let you learn about her. I, I think that the the point of Katie from what I gathered of the game is that she is supposed to be um, a fairly uh, open-ended, loose character because it means that you're going into a situation in a world where you as the player have got no more knowledge of this house and what's been going on for the last year than she does. So you don't have this sort of dissonance of, well, I know that the character is more aware of what's going on than I am as the player. Yeah. So it's, she's quite a good sort of. Did you describe her as an empty vessel? Yeah, um, I don't. I don't think she is though, um, because I mean, one one postcard that really stands out to me is the one where there's a sticker at the top with God shooing away a angel or something with his bare bottom showing, and then she wrote. <laughs> she writes God in quotation marks no butts in heaven and that was just kind of like a nice comedy beat a nice bit of like comedy writing but mm. kind of immediately give you a gave you a sense of you know Katie's sense of humor and her outlook on the world the fact yeah. that she's traveling the world at all kind of gives you an insight on you know her outgoingness and her willingness to kind of just make things happen and and also how that kind of willingness to just go out into the world and and make herself happy may have kind of reflected back onto onto Sam and maybe kind of um, we'll go into this later, but kind of played into her decision to actually run away with Lonnie and and leave home. You almost wonder if because you know like so Sam's a, a rebel in in most senses of the word, and you know and she does not get on with her parents like katie's like a you know she's a model student she's got sports trophies she's mm-hmm. mature she's traveled around the world and she's only like 19 20 years old um you almost wonder if it, it's it like she's there to sort of be like look it's the parents are like there's there's nothing the parents haven't done anything wrong like they're not bad parents like they've got one yeah. daughter who mm-hmm. is just fine um you know it's not like there's two daughters and they're both like oh my god our parents are horrible let's sit around and complain about our parents being horrible like it's like katie's okay whereas you know sam has just obviously got more to deal with um and you know and and in a time where um i mean you know not that i'm saying coming out is is not easy um in any you know in any like even now but in the 90s it was presumably even more difficult and you know i don't think it's that the parents are homophobic they're just they just don't get it. 
Mm. The world yeah. was and the less accepting and place in 1995 yeah, than it exactly. is now. But even now, I feel like I don't think that my parents have, would have anything against me being gay. If, if mm. I decided tomorrow, right, that's it, and went and told my parents, I don't think that either of them would have anything wrong with it. But there'd mm. still be a little sort of aspect of now how are we going to get the grandchildren that we want? But then, <laughs> you know, maybe some of my dad's friends might be homophobic and he wouldn't be able to say to them, you know what, it's yeah. cool that my yeah. son is gay, even though he might yeah. think it himself. Like, I, yeah. I feel like with the, the Greenbrier parents, it comes from more a place of like, this is going to cause difficulties for Sam because of the way the world is, and we, which they then, which then sort of bleeds over into like we would rather she was straight, which is obviously not great. I feel like it comes from a place of like sort of convenience, I suppose. Mm. It's it's a strange yeah. one. Like then you know they're not abusive or ignorant or yeah. I don't know. I think it it, it paints like it, it they're they're quite nuanced in the even though their attitude is is not the best. Yeah, uh, they're, and, they're not just jerks about it, you know. Mm. And I, and I think this this is why I really really do love this game is that the the characters kind of react to situations in very kind of believable and subtle ways rather than mm. like there is a worse version of this game where the dad gets really abusive and like mm. you know they still let Lonnie come round the house you know like there's yeah. a there's <laughs> a message where they like they haven't banned uh, Sam from seeing her friend mm. they're just like you know have a think about this yeah. you know yeah. and yeah. that I'm not going to say that's you know that's not okay but you know everyone's parents have you know qualities that are not so positive <laughs> mm, yeah. and that's just that just makes them more believable and more fleshed out uh, yeah. and makes them feel more real and and they have qualities you know that it does demonstrate they're they're trying to do what's best like that in they may fail and ultimately kind of what what they're doing may you know you may consider it wrong but like they 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 have a moral compass they're not immoral people they have mm. a you know a direction that they're trying to go in and they're trying to give Sam the best possible life that they they can give her mm. it just it just completely conflicts with Sam's true identity it's easy to sort of look in from it and say in Sam's situation so she's she's dealing with her first homosexual relationship um is it correct to say that she's also probably dealing with her first relationship full stop yeah that is implied isn't it i mean there's there's mentions of like you know the boy that they grew up next door to but it's like it's really clear that she like sam was never really yeah. fussed about him it was just like well we just grew up together because we you know he was next door and that was yeah she says that, that at one point she's like he was just that default friend that you would That's have right, if yeah. you grow up next door to somebody and you get the feeling that he's maybe as they've grown up he's become interested in her and she's pushed him back a little bit and yeah you know, she refers to him as being sort of an annoyance and a pain at one point and yeah, says she that, does borrow his copy of Street Fighter 2 and never give it back. Though. She does, but she also says that she's <laughs> dreading having wow. to go and talk to him about it, as if it's become so <laughs> awkward just being around him that she can't go and ask him to borrow a video game. Um, but yeah, I think I think there's a a very sort of real thing with Sam where she's going through what we have to assume is probably her first uh, sort of experience of falling in love with somebody. 
And mm-hmm. as much as that is a very weird and tumultuous time for anybody, no matter who you are, when when that happened to you, probably at about the same sort of age as the characters in the game are, she's then got piled on the top of it, this thing that she's slightly worried that the parents are finding out uh, and mm. she may not want them to. And there's there's talk that some of the people at school, some of the other kids at school know that they're homosexual and might be giving them some trouble about it. So it's it's a thing where you've already you've already got this situation which feels very strange to you. Then on top of it, uh, a secrecy aspect. Um, Steve Gaynor um, in the commentary track uh, was talking about how the the story for Gone Home developed. And, and it was really um, fascinating to discover that their starting point wasn't actually this relationship um, between Sam and Lonnie. It was actually just trying to discover a way of organically dividing this family and that being mm. kind of the central theme of the game, of of uh, division in the family and explaining why everyone had left. And with the, the mother and father, um, he didn't actually say this, I'm just uh, imagining this, but with the mother and father, it's easy to kind of come up with a concept of why those two are divided. There's tr- there's trouble in paradise, like there's uh, a division there, that, you know, the wife is... Uh, possibly thinking of leaving um, the husband, that's a conflict that you've got ready-made. Whereas with the daughter, um, he was saying it was harder to think of something that kind of naturally and organically would create a division. And that's how they came up with homosexuality being a theme in this game. And then Steve Gaynor said, and then I suddenly found myself being a, uh, a a straight man tr- having to write a game about a homosexual woman and um, and having so much more research to do and you know and you know props to Steve um, and I and I've, I don't think uh, you know Steve gets a lot of credit but I think based on what I heard uh, you know through the commentary Carla as well I think should be credited for a lot of the storytelling in this game but credit to them both um, like this game feels authentic. Um, I mean, I'm speaking again as a straight man, um, mm. so I don't know. And it, and it's kind of a shame that, you know, this podcast is free straight men talking about homosexuality, <laughs> like all um, po- gaming podcasts. But... Um, <laughs> It, it 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 was still it was still really great to get a sense of how much research Steve did and how much Car- you know Carla helped him out with that stuff and and you know them together kind of crafting this really authentic uh, homosexual relationship and it not feeling like it, it, it at no point does this feel like a a straight guy giving his perspective on a mm. uh, homosexual relationship between two women it just feels like a honest to goodness exploration of that kind of relationship i think that i think that part of that is the fact that in my mind like you say we're all sitting here straight men similar sort of age to the characters were would have been at the time and they're talking mm. about 17 year olds sort of falling in love for the first time and despite the fact that, you know, I had that experience heterosexually, there was so much of the game, uh, so much of the audio diaries, the way that she talks about the awakening stuff that was 
I looked at it and said, yeah, they were exactly the same sort of feelings I remember from the first yeah. time that I started having these weird experiences when you start to realize that you like somebody and then you like them more and then you realize that you do stupid things for them. And a lot of it, I feel that in in Gone Home, although it's, it is quite a pivotal point that it's a homosexual relationship, I feel like there's a lot of it that it could have been uh, a straight relationship and the same sort of feelings and conflicts and stuff to a, a great extent would could still be present. And they yeah. the ending could have still, things still could have worked out in the same way. You know, they don't run away because they're, you know, because they've sort of been shunned. They run away because they run away together. And that, yeah. they, they easily could have been a boy and a girl just thinking, you know what, I don't want to go into the army. I don't want to be separated from each other let's just disappear and try and make a go of it. Yeah, it's like, obviously, all, you know, the difficulties they face, um, you know, as a result of being in a same-sex relationship, obviously, that's really important and that's really valid. But it's, as you say, when they're sort of describing these little moments they have together and then they're in their their little bubble and it's just the two of them, like, that, it's, like, that just sort of illustrates that, like, a relationship's a relationship and it's yeah. there's nothing... Mm. Like, a lot the, the differences between heterosexual and, you know, gay relationships are mostly, like, just the woeful judgments of other people, like... Mm. <laughs> That like it's still like as you say like as a you know playing this game as a straight guy I still found their relationship quite relatable. Um, yeah. Obviously, yeah. I mean that's yeah. that's probably offensive on some level because obviously I have no idea what it's like like having to you know facing the difficulties that um, people in homosexual relationships face. But I don't know. And yeah, the just other... those those moments of like when they are just falling in love and, and little interactions they have and stuff. And, and it's like, yeah, I, I remember having special moments like that. Yeah. I, I think um, yeah. yeah, it's the same thing. It's the same feelings, you know, being yeah. Yeah. who you're attracted to, you know, whether they're male or female, whatever, you still have the same experience yourself. And it's, it's very similar to yeah, how, how other people do. And like I say, I think anybody who's ever fallen in love with somebody and had that sort of weird, scary butterflies in your stomach, you know, you, mm. on one hand, you kind of, you don't want to tell people because you know that they'll, they'll judge no matter what the situation is. But on the other hand, you know, you kind of want to be screaming from the rooftops that I love this person. Mm. Uh, I think anybody can relate to it. And in a way it's a testament to how well the game is written that you can look at it and say, well, this could be a straight couple. Like they, they treat the subject matter with the same respect that you would treat any other relationship. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I want to avoid kind of like saying that straight is normal. I, I think what, what we're trying to say here is that this, this homosexual relationship is paid the same respect as a straight romantic story would be... Uh, paid in in any other um you know media it it just feels like they allow the romance and kind of intimacy of these two characters breathe and let that be mm -hmm. a thing in of itself and not and they you know they talk about the struggles of um you know being homosexual uh, and and especially being homosexual during a time where um 
I mean, like it's it's still rough, right? Even now, and I, I'm mm, we're, yeah. we're recording this podcast in the midst of the world just absolutely going insane. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Trump's president, and Britain's just going to sink into the ocean. So <laughs> I don't want to say that like the world is better for um f- f- if you're gay, but like I feel like there's a general better understand. You can find circles of people where mm. there is there's more acceptance and more understanding and more just education on the subject whereas the further back in time you go the the more the more and more ignorance you encounter but that you know that stuff aside like the game just does an just a superb job of selling that kind of feeling of intimacy and and nervousness nervousness as you say and i think you know you sean you you were worried about kind of coming off as offences of saying well mm. yeah i i relate to this but i think what what we really mean is in a perfect world mm. like it would just be the same yeah. like it it all those feelings the game sort of celebrates that that level on which love is love yeah. and that's and yeah. it's like the least complicated thing in the world yeah. in that on on yeah. that level you know like see why why can't the homosexual relationship just be considered normal why does it have to be mm. a homosexual relationship not just a relationship mm. And I think it's to the yeah. game's credit that it does go some ways to say, look, this is just as normal as anything else. These people have got the same feelings as everybody else and maybe mm. we shouldn't need to split it up and make it such a pointed thing that this is homosexual. It could just be a relationship. We, we've, we've spent some time kind of talking about Sam and Lonnie um, and I'm sure we'll, we'll eventually kind of meander back to those two. But um, we should you know, pay some lip service to Terry and Janice because I think, mm. you know, their stories, in, in, they're much smaller in scale, but they're just as fascinating. Mm. Um, does anyone have anything to say about Terry to start with? Unfortunately for the two parents, the bulk of the story is told from Sam's point of view. And mm. you don't get, although you see lots of um, sort of letters to and from the father to you know, his publishers and things like that, you get, mm. you do get some sort of insight into his mind. You never get that sort of journal entry of this is how I'm feeling, this is what's in my head. So you're you're seeing it from a, another perspective, whereas you do get the Sam and Lor- Lonnie story from a first hand. So unfortunately, yeah, neither of the parents are that deep and fleshed out. I don't, I don't think I agree. Okay. I think, um, I think Sam and Lonnie are definitely more, you know their characters are more solidified in my mind but i i do feel like i get a pretty strong impression of the kind of man terry is um he he i mean he's very much the guy who tried and tried and tried to be this like image of himself that he just never managed and he's now at a point in his life where He's in a marriage that's not working out and he has two kids that he needs to look after. And like his dream is kind of impursuable at this point. And I I did get a sense of like the depression of this man, of, you know, somebody who has struggled so, so hard to do something that he's just not very good at. Um and, and one of mm. one of my favorite things in media is when um, somebody, uh, you know, like an actor or a writer, has to deliberately 
um, do a terrible job. So there's this <laughs> there's this moment in um, in The Wire that I always think of um, when McNulty, played by Dominic West, who's a British actor, has to pretend to be a a, a British. Um, uh, they're kind of infiltrating a brothel or something, and he pretends to be a a British patron, and he puts on the worst British accent I've ever heard in my life, <laughs> and and it, and it sounds like how you'd imagine like an American friend putting on a British accent, and I love that moment so much. And there's so many moments in this game in Gone Home where Steve Gaynor um, writes as Terry, and it's just that really awful kind of like <laughs> false you know false uh, false drama and, mm. and just, uh, what was the line that really made me laugh oh right um this time you're not saving the president you're saving yourself <laughs> yeah. it's just mm. like it's just it's it's so beautifully terrible um and it's um, like the like you know he has all those post-it notes up on his board as well, and, and yeah. you know one of them's like, "What if JFK getting shot is the desired outcome?" And that you know that's literally a story from Red Dwarf. Yeah, like, and know, it's yeah. a it's a rubbish joke in Red Dwarf as well. <laughs> episode so stupid, yeah. but knowingly so <laughs> stupid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But and and also just kind of getting a set like um, uh, this this game uh, Super Bunny Hop. Uh, George Weedman made a, an mm. excellent point um, in his video on this game, where he said this game like revels in kind of what you learn from people looking at their invoices and looking at the kind of videos they have on their shelf and books they have. Mm. And I mm. think Terry benefits from this kind of style of storytelling the most. Um, because you you do get like you've got these boxes full of his of his books that he's not mm. managed to give out to anyone. Like clearly he like when you purchase like books in bulk like that that you've published yourself, the intent is that you're going to be you know giving out free copies to people to kind of tell their friends like go purchase a copy from the store. Mm. And the box is full of the books. He hasn't managed to get rid of any of them. As, as a side note, he's hiding a, a porn mag underneath uh, one of the trays of books in the sort of the yeah. uh, the implication of well, no one's going to look in here. No one's going to pick up this rubbish. <laughs> like. Like it's never really clear how how good his first two books are, right? Because they don't sell. We know that, but yeah. we also know that you know commercial success isn't the only metric of worth. And it's like it's sort of implied that I mean the, the the resolution is that he writes a third book and it's actually great, right? That's sort of yeah, that's sort of where it ends up. But for a long, you know, for a lot of the game, you you just see him as a bit of a failure. But then the the more more kind of interesting story behind his his writing is this idea that there's a, a sort of a subtext to it that he is writing books about going back in time to save JFK's uh, from assassination. And then the you say the second book, he goes back to save himself again. Mm. But it sort of has this weird tie-in with what we mentioned before, the uncle who yeah. it sounds like it's, I mean, it's almost certain you know not a conspiracy theory but it sounds like at that sort of point in time in the early 1960s his uncle molested him when he was a young child so there's a subtext mm. to his novels that he wishes he could go back in time and stop that event from happening yeah it's this i remember reading a thing about this sort of um phenomenon a while ago when dreadful adam sandler film rain over me 
uh, featured Shadow of the Colossus. <laughs> and it was, I think it was like Kotaku or something ran a story about it where they spoke to um, the director and they sort of explained that, you know, there's this this phenomenon of like people who've been through traumatic events sort of often trying, like they deal with it by doing things that allow them to sort of think about it and confront it, but without admitting to themselves that they are thinking about it or confronting it. And it was, and he took the example of, uh, he knew someone who I think like their dad or their uncle was a, a Vietnam veteran and he used to just watch aliens obsessively. And it was his, his way of, of watching something that was kind of, it was about war and about conflict, but without admitting to himself that he was still hung up mm. on what had happened to him in Vietnam. And the, you know, in Rain Over Me, the, uh, you know, Adam Sandler's obsessively playing Shadow of the Colossus because it's, it's about, giants falling which reminds him of you know he's dealing with the trauma of of 9-11 having happened and yeah and this like you say this sort of this is a similar thing in that he's not talking about the fact that he was abused but he's he's writing a story about a character who goes back in time and fixes a bad thing that happened in the same year you know this dreadful thing happened to him so yeah it's 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 interesting and it's really like obviously it's smart just on a mechanical and narrative level that it you know this all those pieces are there for you to pick up and it was you know the game had had been out for a while before people started piecing it together and um you know an article started appearing about it but it's it's cool that you know the character is not defined by this dreadful thing that happened to him like he is he is a you know an, an abuse survivor but that's just one aspect of him it's not like oh and here's the dad like and and he this his one plot point is that he was abused yeah. as a child like yeah it's yeah. just one facet of him and that's that's really cool and 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 i and i got the sense that like this was a guy who who wanted to create and be creative you know regardless of this event anyway because mm. there are these uh, there's this letter from um an editor of an an appliance kind of review site or no yeah. not a site but <laughs> magazine and you know saying dude you've got to calm down like this is you know we just review appliances here and you're trying to use all these you know fancy words and uh, mul- they have multiple syllables i'm i'm yeah it's <laughs> it accuses him of of doing sort of lengthy ruminations on his own childhood doesn't he which i think the implication is yeah. you know um, he starts doing this because he's moved into his uncle's old house, mm, and, and yeah. obviously it's bringing things back, and mm. it's yeah, and it's it's sort of influencing his reviews of you know VCR players and. Um, One of the the last major characters that we haven't really touched on is Janice. Um, mm. Now, I I personally don't have a lot to say because I feel. Out of all of these characters, she's probably the least fleshed out uh, in my own yeah. head. Um, I, I get a sense of how she kind of um, interlocks with some of the other characters. Her relationship with Sam um, being kind of like the mother who cause, doesn't quite understand what her daughter's going through and, you know, mm. thought she would, but she, mm. she just has no idea what she's doing. And kind of like, even though there is, you know, the hint that she is, you know, looking outside of the relationship with her husband, she's not mm. depicted as, you know, malicious in any way. I think yeah. it, mm-hmm. the kind of uh, potential unfaithfulness of her is depicted as very much like a, a character trapped in a relationship she doesn't want to be in. She clearly, mm. like, this, this relationship is yeah. clearly over. And 
of you know it's very natural that you know at, at that point where if internally you've kind of accepted that this relationship's not going anywhere you would be looking mm. outside of it and mm. and also in spite of that she she is still supportive of Terry. Like there's this um, uh, crunkled up manuscript of um, Terry, uh, like a novel in progress that Terry's writing in the corner, and she's written on the front of it, "Don't give up, honey," or something mm-hmm. like that. And so she like she's trying to you know support her husband's um, creative ambitions despite whatever troubles they have. So I think she's. Uh, she's a lot better depicted than she would be in a lesser game where, you know, I, I feel like there's a temptation to cast one of the uh, the partners in a failing relationship as the villain mm. rather mm. than what is actually the case, whereas it's just two human beings who have drifted apart, which is what this yeah. mm. kind of depicts. And I think that stuff is great. But apart from that, I don't really have a great sense of who she is. No, it's, it seems like she's she's got a job that keeps her at times away for, you know, a few few days, a couple of weeks in a, a location that's, you know, maybe some distance away. Uh, she's got um, it's somebody at work who seems to be interested in her and she, from the... I think most of what you hear about it is one of her other friends writing her letters. And it seems almost like she's very, Janice is very tentative and the friend is sort of pushing her. Oh, you know, go on. That sounds good. You know, why don't you try that? Go out with the guy. Uh, Did you try and kiss him at the end of the evening and whatnot? And it starts off. uh, Janice obviously feels sort of that this guy's friendly and the other woman who's writing to her, is more sort of looking in from the outside saying, Oh, you know, there's obvious signs from him that he likes you more than just wants to be a friend. So it's, it seems more like it's, it's the other woman who's kind of vicariously trying to push her into doing something that she might not be that keen on. Mm. Or certainly is, is having other thoughts about the husband. I'd sort of agree that she's, she's the least complex of the characters and that basically her arc is you think maybe she's going to have an affair, but then she doesn't. Which is great. Glad that she doesn't. Um, but and, you know, and it is the, the way, you know, everything sort of starts resolving towards the end, like, oh, no, like, you know, dad did write a good book in the end and mum didn't have an affair mm-hmm. and Sam's okay, she's just run away. And, and it, it like, you know, it's another sort of nice addition to that, but it's, yeah, like, she, she's definitely the sort of the least remarkable mm-hmm. character. I think, which is kind of a shame, but uh, you know, am I right in saying that the reason that they're not um, they're not in the house during the portion of the game where Katie turns up is because the parents have gone away to some sort of couples therapy retreat thing? Yes, yeah, that's right. Yeah, the sort of spur of the moment decision because why? Because like you get you know again, this is one of the sort of horror ish bits. You get to their bedroom and like all the you know the drawers are sort of all dishevelled and stuff, and it's like as if they sort of just left in a hurry, which of course they have, but for a kind of a nice reason rather than a horrible one. Yeah. Which is cool. To kind of um, tie together all of our, you know, thoughts on the story of Gone Home, I think it's important to touch on how this being a video game kind of impacts the way it tells its story. And, you know, speaking for myself, I think um, unlike um, Dear Esther, 
or um, Everybody's Gone to the Rapture. I think uh, Gone Home takes advantage of being, you know, in an interactive medium more so than, you know, games that it's, you know, often compared to. I think mm. the decision to kind of uh, build this game around kind of natural human curiosity um, and discovery was quite an ingenious one um, mm. because it, there's a guiding hand here clearly and you're kind of you know discovering story beats pretty much in the order that the designers have intended mm. but there's a feeling or illusion whatever you want to call it of kind of being very much in control of the information that's fed to you you're not walking through i mean my kind of description of Dear Esther is that I'm kind of walking through a beautiful gallery having a story told to me, whereas this is um, a world that I've entered into and I'm kind of being uh, presented with puzzle pieces. And I pick up the puzzle piece, I inspect it, I appreciate it for what it is in of itself, and then I put it back and then mm. as I discover more puzzle pieces, I get a, a better sense of how all these things kind of connect together and how that kind of feeds into the greater sense of the narrative. Um, so how do, you, how do you guys feel about um, the importance of, of this story being a video game first and foremost? It's definitely, it's like you say, it, it's interesting in that, like, yeah, is is there any choice in how, you know, the order in which you, you sort of uncover the story? And obviously, you know, the, certainly like bits of the, the house are locked off immediately, but like everyone who plays, it seems to discover everything around the same time, mm. you know, but it doesn't feel like you're being guided through it. And yet it, at the same time, it's like, it's so perfectly paced and, the order in which you uncover things feels right um and you know things are built up appropriately and then twists occur at the right time and and stuff like that but like is that just you know <laughs> are there other other designers done like very clever things that we're not realizing or is it dumb luck or is it just written in a way that actually doesn't really matter which way you know which order you discover certain things in but yeah if it's an illusion it's a very good one i think it's I think it does matter to an extent because you can't progress with the game unless you find uh, certain keys and you'll yeah. find a note that says there's a secret panel over here. And at the same time yeah, you pick yeah. up that note, it automatically plays the audio diary. And a lot of the mm. audio diaries are tied in a way that if you play the game in what would be presumably the developer's sort of optimal way of doing it, where you go from that main hallway through the only way that you can really go and you go in each of the little side rooms as they come up and look at all mm. the different items and pick everything up and inspect it and read everything as you come to it in the order that the game sort of leads you down uh, you will find the audio diaries in a pretty much chronological order which explains everything mm. in the best way mm. possible so yeah i think it's i think it guides you but also relies on you to be explorative and inquisitive in your own way because you could yeah. still yeah. just dash through and you could say, well, I'm not going to bother looking at this. And it would be possible to miss things if you didn't care. But if you've got the investment in it that I think the developers are intending you to have, 
it will work out in the the best possible way. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's the best way of putting it, is that the game kind of rewards you for your curiosity and your want to investigate. There, there is a version of, um, you know, progress through this game where you only pick up the most story-relevant items to progress mm. and you get, mm-hmm. you know, a quite good romantic story with some trouble and Mm. that's it Mm. but then Mm. you don't get what we've experienced which is this this massively you know really well fleshed out family unit and a real sense of how they interlock together and how everyone relates to each other and having that you know it's it's the difference between getting like the skeleton of a story and really getting a full picture of like a really properly fleshed out narrative and world Mm, mm. that these characters exist in Mm. so if there is any player choice the choice is you know to give yourself a better version of the Mm. story um (laughs) than than you would get if you didn't investigate there's a a number of small things that are in theory to the greater plot line they're incidental but give you a, a much better understanding of how the characters' minds work and how, in in some ways, they're different from each other. Um, like you can see, if you read through the stories that Lonnie has written, uh, Lonnie uh, Sam has written about the pirate captains, there's a very oh, obvious yeah, yeah. point somewhere within where the where the first mate I think goes from being a male to being a female. It just yeah. suddenly changes yeah, with yeah. no explanation between two of the stories. Yeah. And it's almost like you can nail down the point where suddenly she started interest, uh, She started being interested in, in women rather than men. Mm-hmm. And there's another similar one, which I loved this, the difference between um, Sam and Katie that you can see in their personality between uh, it's the essays or the, the quiz that they're asked to do where they put the... Um, the different parts of the reproductive cycle or like the um the egg creation yes. cycle in order <laughs> yeah. and katie's yeah. one is very much to the line she just lists out whatever it is the eight different things whereas lonnie in i keep calling her lonnie at uh, sam in you know in sort of a you know she obviously got a bit of the creative side from her dad although actually if you read her piece of writing that she did when she was probably about 13 already seems to be you know, sort of more accomplished than he his, his writing might be. <laughs> so she's written this fantastically emotional piece about a woman in Nazi Germany who I think ends up dying in a concentration camp and ties mm. the little fragment sentences about the reproductive cycle into that story narrative that she's written. <laughs> and it's it shows this stark difference between Katie, who's sort of more academic and, you know, more focused and... Uh, Sam, who seems to be much more sort of flowing and creative. I think, like, in terms of the the story, the remarkable thing for me is, like, so, yeah, if you're comparing this to, um, you know, the Chinese rooms stuff, Dear Esther is, like, a, you know, a man's guilt portrayed as a walk through the Hebrides, and... <laughs> Um, everybody's gone to the rapture. I haven't, still haven't actually finished it, but there's like you know, really heavy sort of sci-fi leanings, or sort of or gives that that impression. Whereas this is quite mundane, really. Like you know, the nods to it, you know, having horror elements or supernatural elements are, are sort of there, but you know, then they just turn out their nonsense. And, yeah, and it's sort of. You know, and by the end, there's this relief that, like, you know, obviously some extraordinary things have happened to the characters in the story but basically like it's just like oh like everything's just kind of fine 
and nothing. Yeah, it's it's just a very too mad has happened. Like, normal <laughs> family dynamic situation that's going on. Yeah, yeah, it's like you know, there's there's sort of relative sort of dysfunction there, but actually in the context of most people's families, it's pretty normal, you know. Yeah, it's average. Yeah. I don't think there's anything that remarkable mm. about them as a family. So the conclusion of the game, um, I, I mean, based on what we've already said, um, it's pretty clear what what is revealed here. Um, you kind of go up into the um, the attic of um, of this house, and the the game is hinting at the possibility that suicide may have occurred, and that you're mm. going to find Sam dead up there. And when I when I realised what was actually going on, that you know Sam had decided to run away, and then you have. Sarah Grayson, the the voice actress who plays Sam, kind of narrating over the top, kind of explaining her decision. I was really, really moved by that moment in a way that I... um, I mean, I don't want to say I haven't experienced since. I, I definitely have, but not with the potency that I kind of felt in this moment mm. and consider and, and as you said like the story like nothing really that dramatic or horrible had happened to any of these characters but by this point I like I'm I'm a hopeless romantic I do get really invested in good romantic stories like lost in translation like leaves me mm-hmm. in tears every time i watch it um and even though that's an in- inappropriate age gap come on um <laughs> but like but that film does a great job of selling uh, selling you on those characters relationship and i think this this does a similar job of really selling you on on sam and lonnie's uh relationship to the point where mm. when you find out that they have essentially get their happy happy ever after it really hit me in the gut yes. and uh, <laughs> i found it really powerful i'm i would be very i mean obviously i don't want to see it but i'd be very interested to know you know the the follow-up to this story what actually happened to the two characters yeah and i'm assuming <laughs> that not particularly good things like for one I mean, thing i mean sam has now i'm going the other way around lonnie has skipped out of going to the army on her way to basic training presumably she will be declared AWOL and will be court-martialed if she's caught (laughs) (laughs) that is is quite an an irritating trope with fiction in general like you know I'm married and to me you know marriage was like a, a big event and but it's but like you know my relationship with my wife is like a an ever growing and changing thing like us getting together was not was not the end of the story but like you know there's always a in fiction there's always this temptation that like the getting together is the the fun and interesting bit and then once the you know they're right they've sealed the deal that's it yeah. <laughs> you know like that yeah, full yeah. stop everything was presumably fine after that <laughs> yeah. um but um yeah like i think in in gone home it's sort of I think the, the game sort of accepts that people might interpret it the way John has in that at the end of the day, like as, as strong as Sam and Lonnie's feelings are for each other, they are young still. Yeah. still rel- I mean, they're only like, what, 16, 17, yeah. maybe a bit older, which, you know, for most people is not the age where they're going to find their, their partner for life. So I think it's it's acceptable to 
to be like a little yeah. bit cynical mm. about that. Yeah, um, but you know, you do stupid things but, when you're in love, especially when you're in love for the first time ever. Which yeah, exactly. Probably both of these characters are. Yeah, it, it does yeah. make you do things that, on retrospect, you might look back and go, "Oh my god, I was an idiot." Yeah, yeah and this does seem like it might like, be one of these things. But you yeah, know, fair and, play that, to again, them. It's that that ex- that acceptance of like you know this, this probably might not work out, mm. but. But yeah. it's fine, you know. Yeah. Like it's, it doesn't matter. It's okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and, and I I feel like um, the relationship between the husband and wife is kind of the developers kind of admitting that. Like, look, there, yeah. there's still a chance that you know Lonnie could end up. You know, people change so much mm. between mm. the ages of sixteen and twenty-one. I, mm. I like. I am fundamentally a different person than i was when i was 16 if i if i met me at 16 i would probably say some awful things directly (laughs) to to my and and you know that's kind of that's why all teenage romances are doomed because at a certain (laughs) point the person the person that you've started this relationship with is no longer like they've gone down a different path. They're, they've got different interests, different politics. Um, mm-hmm. And yes, it's important to, you know, have that logical part of your brain that examines this relationship and goes, ultimately, this is doomed. But <laughs> it also, like, let's celebrate kind of love yeah. in the moment. Like, like ce- mm-hmm. let's celebrate this kind of short term burst of like absolute joy. And mm. that that we've all experienced mm. yeah. at one point in our lives, and it is an incredibly intense and you know maybe long term might cause some damage, mm. but <laughs> in 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 the moment is an incredibly positive thing in your life, and just celebrating it for what it is, and and just allowing you the player to kind of get caught up in that, and and just kind mm. of celebrate that kind of like look. The human experience. It's great sometimes. Yeah. It's not it's not always <laughs> miserable. <laughs> yeah. yeah, to hell with the consequences. You know, what's what's yeah, happening yeah, at the moment yeah. is fantastic and that's mostly yeah. what yeah. we should like, be worried about right now. Life is peaks and valleys, but let's just mm. let, let's just focus on the peak while it's here. Yeah. Let's not worry about the inevitable decline. <laughs> um, <laughs> um just to to cap off um, our discussion uh, on the narrative, um, I've, we've got an email from uh, Ashley Johnson. Um, she writes, My favourite aspect of Gone Home, however, isn't the story or the setting, but the prompt which appears whenever you pick up an object put back. It may just be me, but my inclination towards tidiness carries over into games. Me too. I had to shut every single door in this game (laughs) um, and then get lost because there was no indication of where I had been. Um, (laughs) I always ensure that my inventories are organized, that my player character behaves appropriately for the scene. I always walk up the staircase to the Master Sword. Um, so on the fundamental level, I appreciate not having to haphazardly chuck my family's possessions back in the general direction of their origin, hoping for it to land in a position adjacent to where I had picked it up from, as would be the case in quite a few games. 
Eventually, it occurred to me that this line of thinking probably mirrored that of Katie. Without wanting to respond to perceptions of perceptions, a criticism of this game that I remember seeing around the game's release was that the forensic detail with which Katie inspected the house on Arbor Hill was unrealistic, that her actions seemed unlike those of a relative and more akin to those of a burglar. I would disagree with this. Katie is likely to be scared and confused, desperately searching for answers in this unfamiliar place. She is expected to call home. She will pick up every tissue box in the building, but... As it is her family's home, she quite respectfully places it back where it belongs. Put back became the counterbalance to the potentially disbelief-breaking actions of the player character and put me firmly in the head of Katie. The desire to put back, to return things to how they used to be, is present in many of the characters of Gone Home. Noticeably, I'd say, in the subject matter of the father's novels, However, my favourite implementation of the put-back mechanic can be found right at the beginning. Good old Christmas duck. Every object in the game has a home to which you can return it to. However, Christmas duck has two. Whereas you would usually put back every can of soda or packet of crisps to where it came from, Christmas duck's real home is located in the attic right at the end of the game. Not to sound too mawkish, but... Christmas Duck's true home is not where it came from, but where it is going. I think that's a lovely reflection of Sam and Lonnie finding a home in each other and leaving their previous homes in order to do so, but expressed through a simple game mechanic. It's for that reason why put back are my favourite words in Gone Home. Good old Christmas Duck. <laughs> that's that's a fantastic piece from Ashley Johnson. Please uh, mm. write in more. Um, that that was really great. Um, finally, um, let's briefly touch on kind of the the general aesthetics of the game, um, kind of the art direction and the music choice. It's, you know, um, Chris Remo uh, uh, did the uh, the soundtrack for this game, but there's also a lot of um, kind of '90s music of that era, feminist punk rock and and grunge music um how did how did you guys feel like these aesthetic values kind of fed into your impressions of the game so the like the post-punk and grunge stuff i'm just like not really a fan of but it totally works in illustrating like who sam is and the things she's into and what's you know what's influencing her and like not just the fact that she's into this stuff but it's stuff that especially then you had to go out of your way to find you know mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah and that that sort of all like contributes really well to sort of establishing who sam is like she's she's cool you know <laughs> she's, she's um, not she changes to be cool to fit in with lonnie because she talks about lonnie quite early on about this girl mm. who she thinks dresses kind of punk and it's obvious at the beginning that she doesn't really understand what she's talking about. And then as it goes but later on, it's like like... she changes her appearance and aesthetic to be cool and to fit in with what her girlfriend is doing. And that, that again seems like one of those that's just kind of like that's just kind of how it had to happen. There was no other oh, like, yeah, there's no sure. other way of discovering things other than through other people that you, you got on with, you know? Like I yeah. <laughs> so I I can sort of forgive her that. But I know what you mean. It is like yeah, she you see the transition from her sort of being like, Oh, there's this girl and she's kind of weird to sort of fully buying into it. But that's I like that a lot. 
that's that seems very uh, appropriate to one of those sort of slightly dumb things that you do when you fall in love with somebody. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you sort of yeah. change your personality to partly to try and impress them, but also to be more compatible with each other. Yeah, because, you know, we're all gamers, so we, we looked up online, you know, how to be a gamer, and we saw, all oh, right, right-wing <laughs> fascist? Okay, let's, <laughs> just, let's go with that. Um, yeah, I the, the thing about the art direction in this game is that I don't think it's as immediately um, jaw-dropping as something like... Um, Everybody's gone to the rapture, or even Dear Esther. Like the, both of those sure, games yeah. are visual tour de forces, and part of that is mm. because you know there's so little kind of interactivity in both of those games that you, as a developer, that's time that you can spend improving the visuals. And um, you know both those games look amazing. Mm. But you know, having said that, the the touches to kind of like the handwriting like clearly they're using yeah. you know photographs of reference material that they've actually created themselves mm-hmm. and and all of that stuff there's a lot of character and personality to a lot of the design decisions like one one of my fa- favorite uh, things was um when Steve Gaynor was talking about the the kitchen and how it was mm. kind of uh, being renovated and the decision behind that was influenced by the fact that they realized that they had to create a bunch of assets that would only ever be used in the kitchen and how much of a waste of time that would be. So they yeah. just decided that the, the kitchen would be, you know, mid-renovation. Re- and that ended up being like a, you know, a positive, like, yeah, here's a part of the house that isn't quite finished yet, um, as like a, a bit of character that was entirely driven by resource management on the development <laughs> side, but you know ends up being a positive. Hmm. Yeah, um, I mean, there's there's some fascinating revelations about, um, like you say, sort of time management really from a development perspective. But um, there's another commentary bit where they talk about the, the fact that there's like no shoes anywhere in the house. Yeah. <laughs> And he says that you know that you have to fill the house to a point where it looks you know believable and lived in. But then he said, you know, and then we sort of we were doing the you know filling some of the wardrobes and just putting in you know racks of, of you know jackets and, and shirts and stuff like that. And and they realised there were no shoes. But then they thought, well, if we put one pair of shoes in there, we've got to suddenly do like dozens of them all over the house. So they just didn't put any in. And somehow that was visually less jarring than just putting a few in. <laughs> It doesn't doesn't remind you of what yeah, should you be like there. You just forget that shoes exist in in Gone Home World for some reason. <laughs> On the other hand, everybody's gone out. Yeah. They're wearing their shoes. They've only got yeah, one got pair one, of shoes each. each. That's it. I've only yeah. got like two pairs of um, shoes. But then there's things like uh, the bookshelves. They're they're sort of weirdly fascinating because they they all look handcrafted. Whereas again, if you listen to the commentary, they're not quite. They're sort of sort of several sort of collections of books that are then sort of arrayed semi-randomly which is which is really smart because you you look at them from a distance and you you know like a lot of games things like that you look from a distance and it's like oh yeah you can see how it's just repeating there's a pattern to it um this game avoids Mm -hmm. that um which is really cool um yeah it's interesting what they they didn't include as well as what they did you know some other some other fascinating little things like have you picked up and looked at all of the snes cartridges looked at the um the artwork on them (laughs) uh one of the developer commentaries talks about the fact that the woman who drew them was one of the designers on Mm. bastion 
and there's one that looks very much like a Bastion style <laughs> game. I can't remember what the name of the cartridge is. But yeah, it's really small little details yeah, like that um, that stand it was, out. It was Gen Z, wasn't it? Because I, I remember them talking about getting guest artists in to work on the SNES cartridges, and it was Gen mm-hmm. Z from Super Giant Games who did one of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. cool. And again, yeah. you know, I mentioned the the magic eye pitches. They they work. You know, they are they are totally valid. Yeah, they do. Um, which is a nice touch. Okay, now it's time that we hear from our community. Um, First, uh, the forum posts. So Hunter30 says, Unusually for me, I correctly guessed the outcome of the story about halfway through. Although I did have a moment stood at the foot of the steps of the attic when I suddenly feared the worst, part of me can't help but feel that those fears being realised would have made one hell of a memorable ending a bit a very dark one and not in keeping with the ultimate tone of the game regarding the story i'm a little torn it's an interesting one and an important one but i didn't find the telling of it particularly compelling and in a game like this story is so crucial i feel like it fell a little short of its potential in that regard nevertheless Kudos to the developers for being bold enough to experiment and try something different. I'm glad I played Gone Home, although I can't see myself ever revisiting the house in Portland and its creaky floorboards. Fair enough, Hunter 30. We've been very positive, and I thought it was important to include uh, a forum post that was a bit more critical of the game. Good Shrewsbury says, I played Gone Home on the back of finishing Dear Esther back in early 2014. I had heard the hype for this game and was quite excited to get to it, considering I had no clue what Dear Esther was before I played it, and that game floored me. I must say, on my initial playthrough, I wasn't as taken with it in the same way I was with Dear Esther. I believe this was a combination of hype-driven, misguided preconceptions and playing it too quickly after another game with similar mechanics but wildly different narrative delivery. I really enjoyed the cryptic unfolding of Dear Esther's story, where by the end I wasn't wholly sure what I had just experienced. In this regard, Gone Home's story is pretty straightforward. There's really not much to decipher or interpret, but that's not to say it isn't wonderful. After finishing it again for the show, I very much appreciate Gone Home on its own merits. In this playthrough, I found that I couldn't wait to discover the next audio journal or letter between Sam and Lonnie, even knowing what ultimately happens. The way Sam and Lonnie's love story unfolds was gripping. The subplots with mum and dad and Katie's postcards fleshed out the other family members and gave the player just enough insight to construct what Sam's personal life must have been like. To hear Sam's evolution and struggle with her teenage emotions is something everyone can empathise with, and by the end, I found myself really invested in that character and hoping she could find happiness. Being that this game is quite short and scarce on activity, I feel the reasons I enjoyed this playthrough so much was the great voice acting, wonderful sound and score, and brilliant writing. Katie's attempted reconnection with her family is an unsettling journey through a tainted, empty place which two daughters can no longer call home. And while the window into the way this family fractures is an uncomfortable one, I'm glad I was there to see it. 
Luke 10123 says, thinking back, I can't really remember exactly what led me to buy Gone Home. If I recall, I'd seen it receive very high review scores and even some Game of the Year awards, but didn't really pay much attention beyond adding it to my Steam wishlist as I'm prone to doing. I picked it up during a Christmas sale at something like 85% off, but it sat unloved in my library for quite some time. It wasn't until much later that I felt a bit guilty about the number of games in my library that I was yet to play, so I decided to install Gone Home as a bit of a palate cleanser from whatever I was playing at the time, still not really knowing anything about it. Looking back, that was the perfect way to experience the game. All I knew was it was story-heavy and would only take a couple of hours to complete. But what a couple of hours. I was immediately drawn in by the mystery surrounding the empty house and the absolutely superb voice acting. I was torn between wanting to quickly run through and get to the bottom of what had happened to my missing family and wanted to slowly and meticulously explore every square inch of the house. It was a wonderful experience exploring the house as it was absolutely dripping with atmosphere and clues for the player patient enough to seek them out. You get to know the rest of your family in their absence and they feel like fleshed out real people, something I believe many video games fail at. I really wish I could just forget all about Gone Home and experience it all over again. It was one of those games that further opened my eyes to the potential of the genre and even indie games as a whole. I absolutely love Gone Home. Very highly recommended and I can't wait to see what Fulbright do with Tacoma. So Count Steck says... If I recall, I came to this game from a very roundabout way. I was spending a lot of time on the Double Fine forums and with Chris Remo, who was still working for at Double Fine at the time. Being involved, I started to hear talk about Gone Home. I'm not sure how long after this I actually picked it up, but it was early enough that I hadn't really heard much about it and so came in pretty blind. What unfolded before me kept me interested the entire time. I fell for the red herrings at first. Well, one particular red herring in the bathroom. However, fairly soon after that, I think I began to work out what the main drive of the game's story was. However, I loved that there wasn't just one core thread to be found, with plenty of snippets of the parents' lives which had me wondering about their future too. Maybe I was lucky, or maybe it was just good game design, but I uncovered most things in a nicely dramatic order, which kept me guessing how everyone would end up. Gone Home is one of those rare games that stick in your mind for a good while after finishing it. Alex79UK says, I must admit, upon release, this didn't really interest me in the slightest. Over time, though, from people talking on forums and podcasts, I grew more and more curious and ended up really wanting to play it. I was really pleased it was on PS Plus last year and saved it until I had the time to go for it all in one sitting. I was a bit worried I might have built it up in my head in, into something it really wasn't. But three hours later, and it was better than I ever imagined. The story was incredibly emotionally engaging, and that's just the obvious one. Without even mentioning her mother's affair, her dad's struggling life as an author and apparent depression, and the uncle's drug addiction. 
Discovering the subplot between the dad and the uncle was one of those genuinely chilling moments rarely experienced but always remembered. Finding the height chart down in the basement, marking off the height of the dad over the years and the child's toy in the dingy alcove sent shivers down my spine. The main story, though, I just thought it was beautifully told, really quite touching. I found myself really wanting Sam to be okay. You ended up really feeling like you'd got to know these characters despite never meeting a single one of them. Overall, absolutely brilliant piece of work, I think, and much deserved of every bit of praise that has been bestowed upon it. Probably one of my favourite interactive experiences, well, maybe ever. I picked this up as part of PS Plus, and soon after playing through Everybody's Gone to the Rapture, I really got involved in the story. This has helped that it wholly takes place in a single house so finding the story beats is easier, more frequent, unlike Rapture. This made picking up what happened to residents easier, and you have less time backtracking, which is a godsend for a narrative such as this. I really got invested in the family, feeling for them. The dad's story had me yo-yoing from feeling sorry for him to hating him and back a few times. I know some people don't like the supernatural red herring in the story, but I found no problem with it. I think it in some ways makes the real world problems faced by the family more poignant. Uh, 2Q says, Gone Home is that rare work that precisely nails what it attempts, created by people who sensibly knew the limits of the project and used those restrictions, graphical, mechanical, etc., as a means to focus their work. It also executes brilliantly what so few video games do, the ending. In many ways, it's a finale so touching and memorable that it papers over any other problems I may have had with the game. Three years later, I only recall a subtle, spooky setup, multiple intriguingly spooled out stories, and an extremely welcome human sensitivity that, to me, felt like a first. And finally, Flabio, with apologies to Ruth Brown, says, In a dark, dark house lived a dark, dark man and his dark, dark wife with her dark, dark plans. In that dark, dark place lived a dark, dark teen and her dark, dark life filled with dark, dark memes. To that dark, dark place came a dark, dark girl finding dark, dark clues in a dark, dark world. And that dark, dark house was a dark, dark room. And in that dark, dark room was a... Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> and now we move on to... Yeah. Right. And now we move on to our free word reviews. Um, you can send us your free word reviews at Kane and Rince on Twitter. We always send out a post uh, the day that we're recording asking uh, for your contributions. So, starting with Black 39 says, Is that it? Ryan Sandry says, What lovely decorating. Jacob says, Extraordinary interior design. Ollie Balam says, Even modelled cables. Uh, Asuka says, Engaging and sweet. Mark Delaney says, Is this horror? Glenn Watts says, Bait and switch. Sam Worms says, Where's the ghosts? Freelance Police says, nostalgic, non-haunted house. Is that four words? 
I'm going to let him get away with it. Um, John Timmons says, loneliness at home. Uh, Justin says, superb second-hand storytelling. Nicholas says, touched my heart. Gareth Cutcliffe says, psychologically intimate story. Kurt Lewin says, short and sweet. Dipudi, if I've pronounced that right, apologies if I haven't, uh, it says, innovative, subtle storytelling. SMW says, totally absorbed me. Uh, Luigi at large, made me cry. James McCall said, atmospheric, engaging story. James McKee says, moody, memorable, unique. And that just leaves us to kind of summarise our feelings on the game. Um, Let's start with Sean. So I, like, uh, you know, we've sort of made comparisons to Chinese Rooms stuff, um, which I really like, but I feel like Gone Home, you know, for for a genre which often gets written off as being pretentious and inaccessible, I think Gone Home is a shining example of how uh, a game that is, you know, just about walking around and finding clues and reading things can be made accessible and it can, you know, it can be quite grounded and, and just relatable whereas a lot of the chinese room stuff maybe reaches a little bit higher but perhaps puts a lot of people off i mean it was interesting hearing some of the comments from the forums where you know some people saying they prefer that and that's that's great um but you know if if you're talking to someone who is not sold on the idea of of a game that is supposedly not not much of a game um this is to me this is absolutely the the place to start um i just think it's it's fascinating um and, you know as we've said like the way it it sort of guides you through it but without it feeling like it does like you feel like you're discovering everything at your own pace and yet everything you know all the story beats all seem to come in at the right time even though you think you're just wandering around this house um yeah i think it's absolutely superb and you know as i say for the amount of time it will it will take um for you to finish it it's it's a a wise investment to say the least john for as long as I can remember, I have always absolutely adored playing video games. Um, for most of my life, I feel like I've spent a lot of time championing and defending the medium as best as I can against people who don't understand it, along with a lot of outright detractors. Uh, for my defense, I've been labeled a nerd and a loser, antisocial, childish, Uh, I couldn't count the number of times that people have told me to grow up or stop wasting time, Um, mainly people who can't or don't want to see a lot of positive things about video games. Um, And as someone who's been consistently playing a wide variety of things for about the last quarter of a century, I I see how the industry has grown and matured uh, in a lot of ways alongside myself growing and maturing as I've grown up. Uh, I think it's a testament to the growth and the serious of the medium that games like Gone Home are able to be released to such a high critical reception. Uh, In a lot of ways, it's experiences like Gone Home that validate all these arguments I've been having for years uh, and prove that video games can provide so much more than a fun distraction from real life. Uh, There's no reason why they shouldn't be taken just as seriously as other more accepted uh, forms of art and media. Um, It's games like Gone Home that are at the forefront of this progressive charge. And I'm absolutely thrilled that a game like this can be released and 
be thought of so highly. And as such, you know, I intend to continue championing and defending the medium uh, until it gets the credit it deserves, as I have been since I was about six years old. So for me, um, games have been good at kind of conveying uh, emotion for quite a long time, I think. I mean, I think back to... Like even like even Final Fantasy VII in its like weirdly localized kind of clunky way was an emotionally compelling experience. Um, even you know before that Chrono Trigger, like games have been mm. capable of conjuring um, feelings within me for since a you know a long time, but when I think about all my favorite kind of moments of like pathos or emotional payoff in games, I think of aggro in shadow of the Colossus. And I think Mm -hmm. of, um, Andrew Ryan in Bioshock. I think of these moments that exist in fantastical realities. And, I think what's missing from games in general, and and it's still an area that we're weak on, is just like real human interaction, real human drama. Like some of my favorite films are just two people experiencing what it's like to be in each other's company. Lost in Translation is one of my favorite films of all time. And if you were to actually describe the plot of that film, it's Bill Murray and Scarlett Johansson mess about a bit in Japan and then <laughs> get a bit weepy at the end because they realise they fell in love with each other. That's that's an incredibly simple plot, but it's the nuances and the way that story articulates that makes that experience special to me and the way it's framed and the way you know the performances convey that. And it's just a really human narrative. And what Gone Home and why it's special to me is that it doesn't lean on any supernatural, fantastical... We're not under the sea. We're not in a fantasy landscape with giant monsters kind of roaming the landscape. And listen, I'm not... Shadow of the Colossus is one of my favourite games. I'm not dismissing those experiences. They are absolutely as emotionally potent and valid as this one. But this one is rare in this medium. And for that reason, Gone Home is going to have a special place, is always going to have a special place in my heart because it's one of... It's the example I think of when I think of a game depicting something really real and human and not relying on um, abstractions or metaphors, but kind of depicting things as they are. It teases the possibility of the supernatural and then dismisses it and focuses on the real. And yeah, I just think it's a phenomenal piece of human storytelling and um i think it's the gold standard for this style of game i it's an absolute favorite of mine so that just leaves me to thank john and sean for joining me um on this recording um both of you do you have anything to plug um sean um do you would you like to plug your various podcasts 
Yeah, I'm I'm on two very similar shows for some reason. Uh, the first one being Midnight Resistance, uh, which you can find at midnightresistance.co.uk. Um, and I am also on the computer game show, um, which you can find at spong.com forward slash podcasts, I think. Um, they are both um, people talking about what they have played that week and then answering questions. Don't ask me how both shows exist. <laughs> they are basically the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> But it's yeah. it's the chem it's the different chemistry because you know on on midnight yeah. resistance you all like each other and on the computer <laughs> game show there's uh, uh, I don't I am not entirely sure it's fake ana- animosity uh, sometimes it but I I am I am also often not sure <laughs> on on what level we're operating so yeah it's. Uh... And, and the tension is where the <laughs> entertainment comes from. Um, <laughs> um, John, how about you? Um, I don't do any sort of extra activities. I have a Twitter account that is at Catatonic Nally, but I will warn you, it is not a pro follow. I tweet infrequently and poorly. <laughs> um, and as such, I'm probably not worth seeking out outside okay. this podcast. So, John, not worth seeking out outside this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Um, thank you for coming on, John. Um, you, you're a recent kind of regular guest, um, but your contributions are much appreciated. Um, thank you, Sean. You've been doing this for years, so you know what you're doing. I'm not going to. Sorry, you don't, I'm you not going to thank you. <laughs> It just yeah. in general. No, it is always genuinely a, a bit of an honour to get asked on Kane and Rinse, so it's uh, no, I'm very glad to be here. So next time in issue 264, we hunt down the lost treasure of Henry Avery while also learning the importance of communication in maintaining a healthy marriage in Uncharted 4, A Thief's End.